Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. This episode, we're going to be discussing user experience and why it's so important. I'm joined by Ruth Swiftwood, a lead user researcher, and Tim Harwood, who is our head of design and user experience. Welcome both. Could I ask you to both introduce yourself and your role and also give me an interesting fact? Hi, I'm Tim Harwood. I'm head of design and user experience here at Software. So I I have a, a kind of split role, I guess. So a day-to-day involvement in the production of or the creation of design and research stuff, <laughs> projects, but also, I guess, an oversight and a kind of recruitment and mentoring role within the design department as a whole. I'm Ruth. I'm a lead user researcher and I'm basically here to check that we're building something that people want and that once we've built it people can use it and want to use it and if not how we fix it. A lot of my work is essentially talking to people or working out how we measure how people are using something. Interesting fact I'm a stage manager and performer as part of a drag collective in my spare time so that's a lot of my uh, Wednesday evenings. Great, interesting fact. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm that. <laughs> I mean, you can join us, Tim. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So some of the stats around user experience. Design-driven companies report 50% more loyal customers, 41% higher market share, and 46% competitive advantage. Why is this? What is it that's going on here? There's an element to this where when you kind of talk about use, user experience design or the user experience, the focus kind of feels like it naturally falls onto, okay, there's an interface and what and how is somebody interacting with that interface and what what can they do and what sort of uh, issues are they having and, and solving those. But actually, if you think about sort of UX in it or, and UX design, it's kind of like more verby sense, i.e. The, the things that we do. We actually do quite a lot before that point in time, and I think Ruth said it at the start there, there's much more work that's involved in actually kind of getting the sort of the utility side of things right. It's what is the actual problem we can solve for somebody? You know, what possibilities are there for a for a company, for an organization? How can we help them make better decisions and direct them better towards something that's actually going to work for their end customers or end users? So you're you're already before you're kind of really thinking about the okay, what's the interface like? Moving the bar or moving things up towards somewhere that's innately going to give you better returns and better I guess return on investment, etc. And at the same time, a lot of the activities involved there helped to kind of coalesce stakeholders and people within teams around actually what the direction of travel is or needs to be. So again, lots of the activities are actually about, before you kind of get something in front of a user, whatever that may be, is about getting people to recognise what and why they're doing things and what they anticipate the benefits or the impacts are going to be on both their organisation and and the people that they're serving. You're saying rather than, or even before you get to focusing on where do the actual parts of the uh, interface go, what Mm. are you building and why? You've got to look at that first. There's a lot of diplomacy work involved as well. So it's not just understanding your end user, but also the fact that you're talking to them about possibly building a thing makes them feel involved from the beginning. And that has a big impact later down the line. It shouldn't be a diplomacy job necessarily for user research, but you do find it is because you are the face that they first see when people first start talking about an idea or a project. So there's a lot of you understanding them carefully and that being passed on to higher levels as well. So it's almost about kind of extracting ideas or getting people willing to talk to you about what's needed. And a sense of ownership as well. So if they're 
there are lots of circumstances where, regardless of whether the user research is done or not, they're going to end up having to use that tool down the line. It's much better if they have helped design that tool than if it's imposed later on. I also think that there's an element nowadays we're much more directly interacting with tools. There's no between. Before you might have phoned up a helpline who then interacted with the technology. Now it's going to be on your phone or on your tablet and you are going to have to manage it from A to B. So that's another element involved. You can't escape it. Yeah, <laughs> you, you have to. I don't want to say learn to use it because you shouldn't have to learn to use it, but you will have to interact with it at some point. So why are so many companies not taking this in, into account and coming up with you know essentially poor designs and poor experiences? I think there's an element of lack of comprehension and understanding and just exposure to, to some of these things. I mean, I think it's been quite phenomenal in the last... I'll say five years, it's probably more ten years. The amount that design and UX has become part of the conversation and become become part of the, the business conversation. For a long time there have been companies for whom you can kind of point at, you know, sort of way up there who who do these things well. But it's become a much more sort of a much more standardized thing. But like many things, it's a very long tail, you know, there's a a bell curve of of these sort of things. So it still feels like we, we get to hit that that sort of peak of adoption. I also think actually there are there are all sorts of things. One of my favourite sort of TED talkers, my view, is a guy called Rory Sutherland, who does stuff around behavioural economics. And one of his his things is how actually we're a little bit too aligned to things that you can put into spreadsheets and value things a little bit too much or too easily on stuff that's that's easily measurable. And and traditionally, lots of the things that have fallen into design or the design and UX world are less easily easily measurable or less directly attributable the the impact or have been, you know, kind of thing. There's been a sea change there, as I say, over recent years. But I think that, again, is still working its way through. I'd kind of agree, but also disagree in a sense in that this is going only on personal experience in news research side of things. I think it's a mistake to think that companies are ignoring the user experience. I think they pay a lot of attention to it. I just think that they have in their minds already what they think the user is, who they think the user is, and often that is based either on their personal experiences, which are often very, very different from their end user, or they have a particular user in mind that they have built up, again, like Tim said, through stats that might not actually be reflective of real people. And there's one phrase that is something that comes up again and again with both UX and user research, which is the phrase common sense, which is my most hated phrase, (laughs) because although I understand exactly where it's coming from, one person's common sense is not another person's common sense. There is no common shared sense of things, especially not when interacting with digital technologies. Even if you were to break down a team making digital products, the developers would have a completely different common sense from the UXs and the user researchers, the designers. And then when you spread that out to large companies or large communities of users, yeah, it just breaks down entirely. And I think that's the biggest problem is coming in and breaking down what they already think the user is. I don't think I've ever met a client who said, I want to ignore all of the user needs. I don't care what they think. It's just they think they already know. Mm, And they're almost designing for themselves. This is definitely something that I've come across and perhaps been guilty of is, you know, designing from a coder's perspective and saying, well, I know how it works and I know this goes here and this goes here, whereas obviously that's not reflective of everyone's experience. No, and I think actually one thing that we as an industry have got much better at is dragging all sorts of people, you know, I use the word dragging advisedly, I think, uh, 
along the sort of spectrum of involvement in producing digital products or products into situations where they can see people failing to use the things that they, they've spent hours slaving over with their, their picture of what and how it's going to be used. You know, and myself included, you know, kind of like I've spent many a session either behind a screen or behind a thing like head in hands as somebody blatantly ignores the, the big green button in, in front of them saying literally the words that they keep saying out loud or something. You know, kind of, it's a humbling experience, should we say, sometimes, but it's a quite a good one, I think, for everybody to have, really, in terms of then sort of getting beyond that, I suppose. Mm. So talk me through how one of these sessions with, would work. Is there a standard way of approaching user research and finding out how people would use a tool? Short answer, no. It's entirely dependent on the project, what stage you're at, how much you already know. So, for instance, I've done work on discovery projects, which is before you even have a firm notion of what you want to build, you just need to know whether something even needs built. Quite a lot of that tends to be qualitative, as in talking to people, getting a sense for how the whole system works. There might be some quantitative in there, but it's usually to do with, if it's internal to a business, how that business works. Whereas later down the line, you might already have a a website or a platform or an app that's built and you need to either improve it in some manner or fix it in some manner, in which case the techniques you'd use for that are very different, tend to be a lot more rigid, more to do with testing. It kind of depends on the problem you want solved, essentially, and there's loads of different techniques. Most of the work I've been doing recently has been way more towards the qualitative end, talking to people, focus groups, and then we do... Software in general does a lot of what I would term participatory design. So that's what Tim was alluding to before of letting clients kind of see the process of user research. So in that case, it might be that we've built a prototype for their website. We get some of their users into a laboratory and get them to do some tasks, see if they can do them, record both the screen and what they're saying, and hopefully get someone from the client side as well in to either watch it live or watch it later so they can see exactly where things are going wrong or right. And that's really, really helpful because that tends to have way more impact than me coming to them afterwards and saying, we had problems with this. I think, yeah, probably as it's a slight tangent, but carrying that point, I think one of the things, again, as an industry we've got better at doing is through that engaging everybody involved in the team and particularly those sort of stakeholders and people who pay for these things and make these decisions ultimately corralling them into the situations where they can they can engage in this process of creation because it becomes much less of a case than that at points in time you present work back and going like look here's a picture of how we're solving this thing for you and much more that actually alongside them you kind of agree a direction of travel and sense check with one another and and therefore both reach any points of conflict I'll say or you know or discrepancy in a much lighter sense and much earlier, but also have a re- have a real picture of actually like where the value is that you're going to to get in a kind of communal sense, so that it stands much better chance of actually mirroring how and where they're going to deploy these things and use these things in the future. Mm. And I can really imagine that someone being more involved and actually seeing what's going on or seeing mm. I've got this picture of someone watching through a screen as this user, you know clicks the wrong button that has much more impact than writing a report and saying oh 10 users did this Mm. or I mean you know we do that bit as well and I think there's you know there is utility in the documentation of these things and actually in again a useful thing as part of this process is this kind of I suppose leaving a breadcrumb trail or leaving a a value trail where you know we we work to hypotheses essentially you know we don't know Mm -hmm. how these things are going to pan out but we 
look at the qualitative research, we look at the, the behaviours that we, we see, we look at data and kind of go, like, okay, we think this will happen, therefore we should do this. We do those things and hope that the, the impact it has is, you know, is somewhere near what we speculated. And it, but if it's not, hopefully by kind of documenting these things and actually having lots of this evidence, it makes it easier to, you know, to unpick a little bit and kind of go, okay, actually, like, well, you know, where did we go wrong there or what options did we, you know, should we have followed rather than being sort of sat there and kind of going like, right, we designed this thing and it doesn't work. Where do we start? You know, mm. and go right back to the beginning. Are there any particular techniques you've come across that you, you think are particularly good for eliciting certain types of information or things we've gone, oh, that's really neat? It's going to be a really sad basic one, but if you're, if you're interviewing someone, make them a hot drink. So if you're holding, and, and it's the same for yourself, make yourself a hot drink too. If you're holding a warm drink, you're more likely to be warm and talkative to the other person. I mean, it depends whether it, maybe you want a more antagonistic interview, which is, that's fine. <laughs> but in terms of getting people to talk about themselves and, and their like, day-to-day work, for instance, that's a really useful basic technique that I don't think really gets mentioned online much. Because mm, I suppose people might be quite nervous that they feel like they're being interviewed or that they're the stupid one if they don't get it right. I think there's a certain value in being a bit dumb. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of people can feel like if we're testing a thing, they worry that they're being tested in some way or in some way they're being judged or held to account about the sort of things that they talk to you about. And on many levels, it kind of pays to be a slightly play a role of like, yeah, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I've just been asked to do these, yeah. these things. Could you help me out? You know, and kind of assume a much less imposing or sort of threatening persona as far as that's concerned and a much more sort of like, you need to get me out of trouble. <laughs> In general, I make sure to clarify that I've not designed or built the thing. On occasions in the past, I have, but most times I haven't. And we'll say that and that kind of chills them out a bit and they are generally more honest about things. I try um, to do that. Sometimes maybe my face gives it away. <laughs> but no, generally I think, you know, it's, a, it's yeah. a, a good thing. I think it's one of one of those weird things where, again, you know, a fairly accepted thing is to try and stay silent as well. Mm-hmm. People, you know, people abhor a vacuum and will be inclined to fill it with their words if you don't fill it with yours. And also to try not to verbalise the things you, you want to find out. So, you know, it's like lots of guiding, like, hmm, or, you know, kind of like, it's really weird. If you ever then listen back to a recording of these things, you always sound like so stupid and so kind of like. I do forewarn users now that I will ask them weird questions or perhaps not answer questions for them because a lot of times they'll ask questions about a platform that essentially, if you gave them the answer, would lead them one way or another. So you've got to kind of be like, actually, I want your guess at this. So that can be difficult sometimes. Same with finishing sentences. That's a really hard one not to do. So they'll be struggling for a word, but you really need their word for it. You don't need your word for it. So you've just got to kind of sit there and hope. And and it's incredible actually like how much we do it. Yes. You don't you're not aware how much you do it, but you do a lot. Probably a year or so ago now we were doing a a bit of sort of discovery work, so lots of user interviews for a for a client. And after about the fifth or sixth one of those we would you know sort of walk into the tube afterwards a, a client was with us and, and she says it's really like being in therapy sessions isn't it because <laughs> you know because because quite often it'll be you know like somebody will say like oh what's this thing and you know and it'll be like what do you think that thing is <laughs> you know, you know. we should have like a portable couch that we kind of wheel around and uh... one other thing is clarification so sometimes people will say something and you think you understand it but you really actually need their interpretation of what they meant by it And another thing is that they may say that they do something on the platform that you're showing them, but you want to kind of push to see if they have actually done that in the past with 
similar in similar situations because oftentimes people say the ideal but do something quite different the, yeah. the, the cynic in me has gotten to this point where whenever anybody says you know like somebody told me that it's like yeah i don't believe them <laughs> people, <laughs> people never tell you what they actually do there's a great book called the mum test yeah it's a really um, good one that it's literally about like how can you phrase questions and ask things in such a way that even your mum wouldn't lie to you you know even if you know that sort of thing where it's like well that's such a good idea honey you know so you know and kind of like, it's like actually how do you get beyond that you know and kind of get real evidence from people So one of the themes that runs through UX is making sure that the user is at the centre of the project. So how how realistic is this? Is this something that's achievable? I mean, I, I think to the extent that that you can ever define a single user, or even you know, mm. I mean, you know, ultimately there's a point where I even argue that if you're designing a thing for one person, they wouldn't necessarily always be the same person, and therefore you couldn't necessarily like, always 100% say you know, you know, 100% engagement with them. You're always going to get everything that you could do for them. Like a lot of things, it's about balance and about impact, I suppose. So I've worked on projects where actually there's a very small user base. And in some ways, the best and the most cost-effective and most impactful way is to literally just go and sit in a room with those people who happen to be all be in the same place. And you can get very quick and very instantaneous, you know, like light feedback and, and, and what have you. It's not always necessarily achievable if, you know, you're designing something for a few million people. That's, you know, it's not really going to work so well. So you have to find sensible ways of creating proxies for those things. And those proxies take different forms. They become less real to a certain extent, but it's about actually what bits of real you need in order to deliver the the jobs. And also then by never, or trying hard not to travel too far without gaining some more evidence or some more confidence that the, your direction of travel is good, I think is, you know, it's, a, it's kind of where the iteration and the testing and the, the continual sort of feedback bit kind of comes in. I was going to mention that kind of balance between some research is better than none type approach which I in general would agree with versus the opposite end which is what one of our colleagues terms busy work but it's essentially doing work for work's sake. User research especially on the interview end is quite costly in time and actual money in terms of especially if you're traveling and you know an interview could take an hour and so on it's not just an hour of your time it's an hour of the user's time as well. So you do have to Basically, make sure that you make your questions clear. Um, Not the questions you're asking the person, but the questions that you're going to answer and making sure that you answer them in succinct manners. And you've got to be a little bit pragmatic sometimes. So there's certain projects I've been on where the users involved are incredibly busy. So the likelihood of you getting them to kind of relax and be open and honest in the kind of way that's the perfect interview is probably not going to happen. So you have to look at what you can get and make sure that every time you pass on the information you get, you clarify the situation around it, saying, you know, this is under stressful circumstances, people with very little time in a, you know, in an office that didn't even have comfy chairs in, whatever. As long as you take that into account, I think you can always get something good out of research. But as Tim says, it's about getting the value balance right on it i do think there, there's a circumstance where i don't hear it as much anymore but i certainly used to hear you know we don't have the time or money to do any research as mm, a, that's as nonsense a, yeah. and yeah and that's you know that's such a fallacy because whether you like, like it or not you are going to research it it might just be that you're going to research it by spending a whole bunch of money and then launching it to 150 million people or what have you <laughs> and you know yeah. and hope that that focus group will give you the confidence that you want 
you know, and it's surely much better to pay for Ruth on a train for an hour, an hour or something. <laughs> you know, that doesn't feel anywhere near as expensive. Yeah. Literally 20 minutes ago, I was having a conversation with one of our designers about, um, and we decided to cancel a testing session for next week because actually the thing that we want to test at the minute, it's just a it's kind of design prototype. It's, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors and it's very fake. And the thing that actually in order to move forward, we need to test is something that's of much more realistic quality. It will be wasted time from everybody involved. I think we won't actually learn anything. So why test that then? It's, um, it's that, I don't know, old slightly cod story about the, the drunk hanging on a lamppost looking for his keys, you know, and it's like, I lost them in the park over there, but I can, you know, I can see the lights better over here sort of thing. You know, it's just because you can kind of do this thing doesn't necessarily mean you will get the value. So I would say, though, that there's a hundred different ways to use a test now in a way. Like, we're talking a lot about interviews and they are the most kind of time-consuming, costly end of it. But, I mean, you can, first of all, do things a lot more remotely well now, in a way. So it's not just a kind of fuzzy phone line chat with someone. You can actually have them on screen using a prototype that you're recording the screen from. And, you know, you can. there's all sorts of ways around that. Prototypes are a lot easier to make now. I mean, I think that's got faster and faster over the last few years. So you can whip up something that someone can play around with almost like a real app incredibly fast even if you're someone like me who does not do development there's lots more ways to communicate with users in fast short bursts that get you something and I think there's always space for that. What about trade-offs between situations where you know what is best for the user Mm -hmm. but that's in conflict with either the business goals or the kind of technical feasibility of the system or the cost of the system? To be honest, it kind of comes back to discussions of value again. Really, we're rarely absolutely working for the for the good of man. I mean, you know, kind of like sometimes feels like we're we're trying to do it, but you know, but quite often there's a there's an economic aspect to these things, and you know, ultimately there is a client who, for whatever reason, has some money to spend in order to achieve something. And to a certain extent, it's about actually how do, you know how do you provide them with the ammunition to to make sensible decisions. And you know, I think it's very valuable to be an honest advocate for what you see the the outcome and the impact likely to be and again I think you know it speaks a lot to like actually trying to bring people with you along those sorts of journeys because it, it makes it a lot easier to have those conversations and you sort of tend to have them in a slightly lighter more continuous approach you know thing than a point in time where you turn up and kind of go like and drop the research findings on the table and then go like and here's the you know here's what it means bottom line wise what have you you know there's a you can develop a more innate understanding of actually like how to do these things. Thankfully, I'm not really sure that we've got or have ever had to work with someone where the economic goals were clearly in conflict with you know what is actually good for an end user. I'd say in, in my past life, I have come across that conflict yeah. between... I'm not sure it's, it's often not even necessarily business goals. It can just be sometimes power players who have a particular mm. opinion of, of where the product should go that is in direct conflict with users. I would say that the processes we use here tend to mitigate that. Like Tim was saying, you're not going off and doing user research for three months, then coming back to their precious idea and going, ah, well, actually 90% of it is terrible. You're gradually, well, you're taking whatever their proposal is, you're breaking it down into a load of hypotheses for you to test. And you do that along the way, you make sure that they're involved, that means that there's never a shock moment. It will be little bits and you can have discussions around bits and pieces of the product and some might drop and some they might keep even if it's against user research. I mean, in the end, as a user researcher, you don't actually make the final decision. You just make a good argument or case for what you feel is the view 
and the experience of the users. And they take that into account along with all the other factors. I mean, things like technical feasibility, that's a bit of a brick wall, really. I mean, if I can, I can say what the users want, if they want a like, you know, new VR system involved in it, we can't build it. There's not much I can do about that. Which, again, actually, it's something that didn't come up before, but, but there is an element sometimes where you're building something essentially new and you're asking these people to do a new thing. They're not going to ask you for it because it's completely outside of what they have already. It's more that sometimes there will be a bit of a conflict between what users say they want and what actually meets their needs and then what actually meets the business needs. And I guess it's just a boring answer, but it's a discussion. So there are a few broad categories of users who have been really poorly served by technology um, going backwards. How are, how are businesses doing now with accessibility? Are they thinking more about this? Is enough being done? Or is it still something that people are trying to kind of paste on afterwards and go, oh, you know, we should have thought about that? I think they're doing quite poorly, to be quite honest. I mean, I think they're doing better generally than than they have historically. I think you'd be hard pushed to find somebody who would actively set out to, like, let's make this thing as hard as it possibly can be to use you know, if you have a particular disability or, um, you know, or in a particular context. But it's badly misun- misunderstood. It's quite often far too far down the, the, that sort of value chain of stuff. And unfortunately, I think actually it's going to be some of, the, some of the kind of adjacent things that have a sort of a reflective impact on it that actually help areas of accessibility. So, I, I mean, I think the thing that comes to my mind most is initiatives like schema.org, which is a sort of open-sourced way of describing all of the all of the data in the world, which literally has um, sources of markup and things like that, that happen to be very, very accessible and have all the kind of correct roles and, and what have you described and semantically very, very correct. Mostly it's a benefit for companies because actually Google uses that for its SEO things and is increasingly using it to rank stuff. So there's a, you know, I think quite often there'll be a, a financial incentive to get these things because people will be able to find us and, you know, and then there's a corollary benefit, which is and actually the techniques we use to use these things means that it's a bit more accessible. I mean, I think we've been quite fortunate in that actually we've done quite a lot of projects for the BBC and quite a lot of projects for the government, mm. both of which have a much higher bar in terms of doing these things. But Yeah, I was going to say government is more focused on accessibility because it's built into their, to their projects a lot more. I would also say that it doesn't solve all accessibility problems because some of them are to do with visual design and other things, yeah. But developers showing an interest in accessibility is probably what's going to improve it most from our end, in that a lot of it's just about, you know, like markup and things. It's like it's how they build it in the first place. And if they are already assuming that any project they go on to, they're going to have to look at accessibility, that's going to improve that. So I know that's not a user research answer, but that, that will help massively. And it helps massively because when user researchers do do research with those groups, then the developers know exactly what we're talking about when we come to them saying, hey, they can't use it with their um, reader or they can't use, they can't differentiate between these colours or so on. Tim's probably hit the nail on the head in terms of it's going to be the financial incentives that are going to change it to some extent. So if, if it starts meaning that you don't show up on search engines because you're not accessible, that's going to be a big pusher. I also actually think... We've had a bit of a plus with it because of the weird devices now. So it's kind of like devices got fancier and fancier, bigger and bigger screens, which meant you could have more more and more less accessible things on it. But then when you like 
switch it back to things like smartwatches and tiny phones and things where suddenly you've got to make it something simple enough to be seen on a tiny screen again and and these are now turning up on household objects and all sorts of things that's actually bringing it back we're now kind of getting rid of a lot of the stuff that is inaccessible and stripping it back to basics which hopefully at least will make people think about that and retain some of that for future design. In terms of testing with accessible users, there's always a, a great willingness to, without any notion of how to, especially if it's a particular group. So, you know, like for a government project or a project internal to a, a client, they've got a finite number of users, It's f and they have no idea how to discuss with them who has accessibility issues, um, or even what they are, and then how you run tests and what questions they want answered relating to them, which in fairness should be on user researchers as well to know more and to, if you know that you're not going to get a massive amount of help from a client necessarily on that front, you should have people you can turn to, charities you can turn to, groups you can turn to, to gather users that might help you test those things, even if they're outside of the user group that you're focused on. I think also there is, you know, there is a bit of responsibility from our end in terms mm. of making our our clients and making our teams realise that actually accessibility isn't about designing some things for those three poor people over in the corner over there mm. who you know kind of like who need a screen reader or what have you. That actually these things exist on a continuum, and it's a continuum that, or it's a lot of continuums. You know, it's it's about the fact that actually everybody in this room at some point is going to be we're all going to need some sort of accessible device. You know, when we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s, you, you know, you are temporarily able-bodied, as I've heard uh, and spouted several times. But also, you know, I don't know, heaven forbid, but I fall down the stairs and injure my arm and suddenly I'm, you know, kind of like for a short period of time, I've, I've got an accessibility issue. I'm in somewhere very loud and therefore, you know, like I suddenly have some issue where I can't hear. It's, you know, it's temporary, but it's on a train or somewhere, you know, I've got a really bad signal and, you know, actually then the device that I'm using trying to download massive bits of video or, you know, or, you know, like actually it's like, no, I just wish there was a text description of this so I could kind of get through it to get that bit of information. You know, there are all sorts of kind of contexts and things that, that mean accessibility isn't just a, okay for, you know, for a few people. It's actually quite a lot to do with everybody at points in time. The single biggest accessibility issue that I've come across is digital literacy, actually, mm. on that front, which is, A, really hard to kind of identify because people don't tend to self-identify as it they don't necessarily realize that they have any issues using digital products and oftentimes they'll pass the test so you can you can hand someone a, a survey and because it, the way they're skewed they don't tend to pick people up necessarily but you can very clearly see them in in a user research session having difficulty with things like things that people assume are global signifiers to someone using a computer that this means that you know this button is colored that way so it's going to direct them this way or even knowing what to look for on a screen that's really hard to test for it should be something that you're kind of keeping an eye out for in user research and it's something that is probably the single hardest thing to a discuss with and then kind of prove to a highly digital literate team of developers designers yeah, I don't know what the solution there is, except that people should be more willing to accept that actually it's not innate in all of us knowing how to use a computer now just because everyone has a computer or everyone has a smartphone. 
people often have very kind of closed circuits of what they do on those devices that as soon as you push them out of it they are not comfortable and that can cause all sorts of problems in using products. Mm. Very interesting. Just to finish, would each of you maybe like to highlight a future trend that you think is worth looking out for? The whole kind of AI slash voice commandy stuff, Google Home. I haven't, I haven't got one in my house yet, but I have friends who have in fact, a house sat for one looking after their, their Google bot <laughs> as well as their house. I don't even know where to begin on user testing for that, actually. But that's that's a fascinating area. And flips a load of those accessibility issues on their head, probably with new interesting accessibility issues. Yeah, so, I can yeah, that's, that, yeah. <laughs> so, somebody who's used to using a screen reader will, yes. will probably have a much easier time of it navigating and remembering and actually there's those, those facilities that you take for, for granted when you've got a screen playing back the state of things to you, et cetera, that actually mm. you don't have when somebody's just talking to you. I think there are all sorts of opportunities there as well where actually, weirdly, taking people away from a screen is very good because it takes people away from a screen because actually quite often when you're designing things for a screen, you're also designing things for what happens before and what happens after. And it's very easy to get fixated on the thing that happens in that like glowing rectangle in front of you and not really consider the, the context of the people on the way in and actually where and how they got, got there and what you can do to make that bit work better for them and where they're going afterwards and or sort of looping around. And I almost think like fundamentally doing away with that, that bit in the middle kind of makes you think, of, you know, they, they do become more sort of service or journey oriented things. But yeah, fundamentally very, very difficult and very, you know, very linear. And, and because they're new, I think also quite skewing. Um, I was talking to somebody who'd been been doing some user testing around uh, Just Eat doing delivery robots and how, you know, had this weird thing where they, they got the, the sort of satisfaction results they were getting around people having stuff delivered by their robot was really, really high and, until they started, like, reducing the number of people they were testing with but, like, increasing the frequency. So picking some high-ordering people and, and test, like, so that every delivery they got was by a robot. And within a couple of weeks, actually, that kind of, like, ooh, it's a robot thing has sort of died. And then you're kind of going, like, oh, it's a bit slower than a person. Or, you know, kind of, depending on actually how you go about testing these things, you could kind of end up making all sorts of product decisions and uh, wrongly. Well, thanks so much, Tim and Ruth. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time on Software Tech Talks. Thanks. Thank you. If you'd be interested in working with us at Software in user experience or design, please do check out our website, www.software.com. Mm-hmm.